This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Mature Themes. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 239. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and tell you the latest on my writing endeavors. More on that later in the show. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 12 in my Metamore City novel, Homecoming. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 228 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. After going clothes shopping downtown and engaging in an impromptu threesome with Kate's tailor, Henri, Kate and John came back out onto Main Street, where they found that the Bridger Heights High School's homecoming parade was already in progress. To get back to John Skimmer, they had to circle up and around the parade route, which gave them a chance to see nearly the entire parade in half the time. But along the way, they encountered a couple of different kinds of trouble. The first was a group of protesters from the Apostolic Church of Yahshua the Redeemer, an extremist religious sect that is intolerant of all kinds of outsiders, Celestials, Daedra, and Fae. If the Redeemers had their way, John and anyone else with divine essence would be banished to the dreamlands, or killed. Not wanting to risk being exposed in front of this hate group, Kate cast a veil over herself and John, letting them sneak past unseen. The second potential problem was more of a mystery. John noticed that much of the parade route was covered in a delicate network of essence. It was similar to the way John extends his power when he's feeding on the ambient lust of the people around him, but the essence was much more delicate and diffuse, and only a tiny amount of life mana was flowing through it. John compared it to trying to drink water through a plastic coffee stirrer. Clearly there was some sort of outsider present, and it was drawing energy from the crowd, but John couldn't begin to guess what kind of outsider it was, or why it was feeding in such an inefficient way. It clearly isn't dangerous, at least not the way it's feeding right now, but it is damned peculiar. John and Kate mulled over the question of whether they should notify the Lothanasi, the group that manages the relationships between humans and outsiders. Unfortunately, if they do call in the Lightbringers, Kate and John will probably have to leave town, or else Kate's transformation will likely be exposed. They decided to postpone the decision until after the Skyball game, when they will examine Sam's student, Chase Tomley, who's been suffering a mysterious illness for the last several months. The strange feeding web they observed today might be completely unrelated, but it might not. If this outsider has been feeding on Chase, there will be signs of it, and they'll have to call in the Lightbringers soon, before it claims a new victim. 
Homecoming, A Tale of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 12 Lisa still wasn't home from her closing, so John, Kate, and Sam ate dinner without her. Sam had whipped up a pasta dish with some of the leftover chicken and a bunch of vegetables, and it smelled as good as anything John had ever made for himself. They gathered around the dining table, Sam said the grace, and then they all settled down to eat. As they began loading their plates, Sam complimented Kate on her new outfit. "'Henry's work?' he asked, mispronouncing the man's name. "'Yep,' Kate said, offering no further details." She and John ate in silence. John suspected that the Redeemer protesters and their mystery outsider were still looming large in her thoughts. "'He's a good man,' Sam said, after a minute or two. "'I'm glad he's still in business. He always took good care of you.' "'He took good care of her this time, too,' John said, deadpan.' Kate kicked him under the table. "'I can see that.' Sam said, apparently oblivious to this by-play. You should have seen Katie after we got her that first dress from Henry. When was it, sophomore year? No, second semester of freshman year, Kate said. I was already over 170, and I needed an outfit for the spring formal. That's right, Sam said. It was something, John. She stepped out of the changing room and twirled that skirt in front of the mirror, and her whole face just lit up. John smiled. I can imagine. Kate's expression was more introspective. It was the first time in years that I didn't feel like a freak, she said quietly. Henri made me feel comfortable in my own skin again. Made me feel like a girl somebody might want. She pushed a few noodles around on her plate. Nobody asked me to dance that night, but nobody made fun of me either, so I called it a win. John reached across the table and squeezed her free hand. Well, nobody's going to laugh at you now. Kate squeezed back, flashing him a brief but grateful smile. Anyway, Sam said, after that we made sure to go back to Henry at least once a year to get her a new outfit. Cost us an arm and a leg, but it was worth it. Quality's worth paying for, John agreed. You buy something that's made well the first time, and maybe it costs you five times as much, but it lasts ten times as long. Kate looked up then, her eyes sparkling. Did Morgan teach you that? She's always telling me stuff like that. John answered before he'd really thought about it. Nah, she probably learned it from her mother, same as me. They had a lot in common, he finished, somewhat lamely. He had belatedly realized that Sam was perking up at the mention of his family. That was a can of worms he did not want to open. He could see Sam looking at him out of the corner of his eye, visibly wondering how to pose a question and make it sound casual. Kate covered for John by looking at the clock. We should talk less and eat more if we want to get the good seats. Sam relented at this, and they finished their meal quickly and with little further conversation. Sam covered the bowl of leftovers and stuck it in the fridge, then they all piled into his sedan and drove the five minutes over to the high school. Sam went in via a service drive and parked in a staff-only lot, 
which saved them from waiting in the long line of ground cars and skimmers at the main entrance. Rousing music played from nearby loudspeakers, and they followed the thudding bass line to the Skyball Stadium. It was about half an hour before game time, and the bleachers were already more than half full when they took their seats. John scanned the room as he sat, taking in the multi-level arena in front of them. Like most league-affiliated Skyball courts outside of Metamore proper, this one was broken into three zones, suspended at different elevations. The ground zone, or pit, was a recessed area ten meters below the bleachers. It covered the full space between the opposing team's hoops, 28 meters long and 15 meters wide. A player could move anywhere in the ground zone at any time, but since the hoops were suspended 15 meters above the pit, players tended to move out of that space as quickly as possible. The second-level neutral zone was an elevated platform in the center of the court. Ten meters square and five meters above the pit, it could be reached through the use of enchanted jump pads that sat below it in the ground zone. The neutral zone, in turn, was equipped with its own jump pads, which provided access to the red zones. These were a pair of U-shaped platforms suspended ten meters above the pit roughly even with the sight line of the bleachers, and which surrounded each team's hoop on three sides. Most players scored by throwing the ball through the opposing team's hoop, a suspended ring two meters wide. However, a particularly daring athlete could use the jump pads in the red zone to launch their entire body through the hoop, carrying the ball with them. This was called a plunge. It was always a dramatic moment, and it earned the player's team an extra point if they succeeded. Nets and slow-fall magic fields surrounded the court on all sides, ready to catch any players who took a plunge, or otherwise fell or jumped from a platform. John was only mildly interested in Skyball, personally. His favorite athletic activities involved fewer clothes, and a lot more bodily contact. But Kate was an ex-player and a rabid fan, and John had watched enough games with her by now to have picked up the rules. The blend of on-field enchantments and raw athletic talent made it one of the most dramatic sports, and when players were flinging themselves through empty space like a pack of manic squirrels, it was certainly entertaining. John suspected, however, that anyone who indulged in the sport must have a bit of a death wish, or at least was heedless of their own safety to a degree he could not understand. Music continued to blare from the PA system as the seats gradually filled. Students and adults huddled in groups and yelled to be heard over the background noise, which of course only made the problem worse. John sat quietly and tightly closed his aura. This would minimize the amount of Daedric essence he gave off, which in turn would make it less likely that he would draw attention to himself. He noticed Kate doing the same thing, and he gave her a thumbs up. Neither of them wanted a repeat of the chaos she had stirred up downtown. Ten minutes before game time, the announcer was in the process of welcoming the crowd, and John again noticed the diffuse web of essence they had seen at the parade. It had crept into the stadium like a fog, and again, John did not perceive it until it was all around them. He reached over and tapped Kate's arm to warn her, then closed his eyes and focused on his aura sight trying to block out the announcer's voice and the cheers of the crowd. 
this time there was a center to the web. With the stadium full of people who were more or less sitting still, John could see the lines of power radiating out from a single point. The trickles of energy converged at a spot below the bleachers, near the end of the court that stood to his left. He kept his eyes closed, not wanting to disrupt his concentration on the diffuse, subtle network of energies. He leaned in next to Kate's ear and pointed blindly toward the web's center. What's over there? The crowd was cheering loudly now at the announcer's instigation, and he had to shout to even hear himself. Kate's body shifted next to him, and he felt her breath on his ear. Locker rooms, she said. Home team on that side, visitors on the other. She paused. Is that where it's coming from? I can't tell. That's it, John confirmed. He furrowed his brow and concentrated again, and abruptly realized something else. It's moving now. Pretty fast, too. Kate's hand moved between them, reaching for the spot on her belt where she usually kept her casting dagger. She cursed under her breath, probably remembering belatedly that she didn't have it with her. Apart from being her tool for shaping magic, the Arthana was also, of course, a weapon, and thus not permitted on school grounds. And now, the announcer drawled, make some noise for your hometown heroes, the Bridger Heights Badgers! The crowd went nuts, whooping and clapping and screaming, before finally settling into a chant. Badgers! 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 Down below, the center of that core of essence spilled out from under the bleachers and flowed into the pit. The jump pads whirred a dozen times in quick succession, and John heard the sound of sneakers squeaking and chirping as they landed on the elevated platform of the neutral zone. The essence moved with them. John opened his eyes. Twelve young men and women, all of them attractive and incredibly fit, stood in a neat line along one side of the neutral zone. They wore uniforms of red, black, and white, with the words Bridger HTS printed above their jersey numbers. At the opposite side of the platform, twelve more youths had outfits in white, purple, and dark blue, with a raven's head and the word Littlefield. He had been so focused on finding the mystery outsider that he hadn't even noticed when the visiting team had entered. In the middle stood the head referee, waiting to perform the coin toss that would decide which team had first possession. It's one of the players, John realized. He squinted at each one in turn, trying to see where the power was coming from. And tonight, for the coin toss, the announcer said, here are the team captains, Miss Janet Vickers for the Ravens, and for your Badgers, Mr. Chase Tumley! The two athletes stepped forward, meeting the ref in the center of the platform. Janet, the visiting captain, was tall, elegant, and dark-skinned, her hair bound into a mass of small, tight braids. She was clearly of Arambian ancestry, and she carried herself like a warrior queen. Chase, the student whom Sam had believed to be cursed, was just as obviously of Northlander descent, with short blonde hair, pale skin, 
and a handsome, square-jawed face. He had an air of charisma about him that instantly drew the eye, in a way that John found all too familiar. And when he moved, the cloud of essence moved with him. John sat back in his seat, feeling his blood run cold. Oh, gods, he murmured. Kate looked at him, her brow furrowed in concern. John, what is it? He looked out again at Chase, a handsome, smiling, successful young man, and one, John knew, whose life was about to be destroyed. He leaned over and spoke directly into Kate's ear. I understand what's happening to Chase, he said. He's an incubus. And that's the end of chapter 12. Come back next time when John and Kate discuss what to do about Chase and get their first introduction to the young man. Wanda Lee Brayton said, I'll be writing as long as I can hold a pen in my curled, cramped, arthritic hands, and then I'll dictate it if it comes to that. They'll have to pry my pen out of my cold, dead fingers, and even then I'll fight them for it. Guaranteed. So come with me, and bravely continue the storytelling struggle. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of July 4th through July 10th. I wrote 6,030 words this week, over the course of 9 hours, for an average writing speed of 670 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 84 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on Honor Bound. In Chapter 14, Natasha met Honor's father, Lord Bellevue. This is going to be an interesting relationship, because Bellevue has a deep respect for military veterans, but he's also immersed in a patriarchal and classist culture, which wouldn't take kindly to Honor and Natasha's relationship if it were exposed. I'm looking forward to seeing how those two opposing forces work themselves out. This week also marked the return of Noble Alex, the androgyne house scion whom Honor met back in Chapter 5. Alex has their own agenda for this summer's social season, and it involves Lord Bellevue and his position in the Council of Peers. How will this impact Honor and Natasha? I have some ideas, but we'll have to watch and see how the story unfolds. I'm now in Chapter 16, and the manuscript is over 38,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Say hello to Andrew. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. For $3 a month, you'll get access to exclusive preview content, including the first draft of Honor Bound as I'm writing it. Plus, all patrons get access to exclusive benefits, like our patrons-only Discord channel, behind-the-episode commentaries, and bonus art from talented Metamore City artists. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. And now, the feedback. We've got some new reviews on the books in the podcast. Kelly Stevenson took me up on the offer of a free copy of Distant Realms in exchange for an Audible review. She writes, 
In this collection of stories, Chris Lester demonstrates his versatility as an author. The wide range of genres represented here showcases the skill of this talented author. Whether a story is snarky, creepy, or steamy, you know it will also be creative and well-written. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to these stories, and know they will get many more listens in the future. Sarah Testarossa left a review of Homecoming on Amazon. She calls it a sexy adventure with heart, and says, I started this book expecting a fun, sexy romp, with magic guiding some of the eroticism. What I got was so much more. There were warm, fuzzy feelings of family and friend acceptance. There's a well-thought-out plot that touches interestingly on some societal issues, in a fantasy universe, but there are real-world parallels. There are such steamy and varied sex, in terms of one-on-one versus group and group composition, how magic comes into play, etc. This book is a fun, wild ride, and I recommend it to adventurous readers of erotic romance. Feline Cat updated her review of the podcast, saying, I upped my rating to five stars because one thing overrides my complaints. Episodes keep coming. How many podcasters don't release the seasons they say they will? Thanks to all of you for helping to spread the word about my stories. Every review helps new readers and listeners to find me, so if you want to show your support for my work, it's a quick and easy way to do it. And don't forget, I still have free promo codes for Distant Realms and The Lost in the Least, so if you'll promise to review the book, I'll be happy to send one your way. Just send me an email at metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com to let me know. Andrew MacArthur writes, I was catching up on some episodes, and that spawned some questions. Can people take the Metamorph curse to become a theriomorph based on things like dragons, unicorns, kelpies, etc.? Can people become a theriomorph to help repopulate endangered animal populations? Can multiple people take the curse to become a theriomorph based on an extinct species and reintroduce it back among the existing species that way? Can there be dinosaur theriomorphs? I'm totally not trying to introduce a battle between a dragon and a tyrannosaurus in downtown Metamore City. Unquote. Hi, Andrew. The curse has turned people into magical creatures in the past. In the time of Metamore Keep, three characters became dragons, and a woman named Devara became a unicorn, so it's definitely possible. However, Magical creatures have some profound differences in their biology from humans and other mundane mammals. Those supernatural abilities, like fiery breath, or the power to cure people with a touch of your horn, come with some pretty substantial physiological differences. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, when we were talking about birds, reptiles, and insects as template species, the curse has to find a compromise between the mammalian anatomy of humans and the very different anatomy of these template species. Each resulting hybrid is a kind of unique biological miracle, which can make it difficult for these folks to receive effective medical care when they need it. That's even more true for magical creatures than it is for mundane ones. For this reason, the Office of Curse Administration recommends that people stick with the basic mammals for their template species. As for extinct species, there's nothing preventing the curse from turning someone into one in principle. 
but since Kaya is the one in control of the magic now, it would have to be a species that existed during the time that Kaya has existed as a conscious spirit. That's at least 10,000 years, but probably not millions of years, so no dinosaurs. It would also have to be a species that existed within the geographical region of northwest Galindor, though any animal that has been brought there as a zoo specimen would be fair game. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that you can resurrect extinct species, because even when a theriomorph is in their full animal form, they are still essentially human. They have 46 human chromosomes, and they can only breed with other humans. Then again, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Thanks for the question! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.